0: We're at the end of chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Hear the word of our God. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Let's pray. Creator, speak to us, for we are made in Your image. Redeemer, speak to us, whom You bought with Your blood. Father, speak to Your children, whom You have adopted in Christ. Lord, Speak to us who claim you as king and bow before your authority. Jesus, speak to your bride, expressing your love, and bathe her in your word. Spirit, illumine the scripture for all who are united to Christ. Amen. Having grown up in New England um, and discovered John Irving when I was a teenager, I've always sort of been a little fascinated by John Irving. If you don't know, he's a New England author um, who has uh, written a number of books that became movies. Uh, You might be familiar with the Robin Williams movie, World According to Garp. Well, that's from a John Irving novel. Um, Simon Birch, which is one of my favorite films, is actually a... Uh, taken from a prayer for Owen Meany. Well, perhaps it's the New England thing. He talks about uh, things that are familiar to me. Uh, Perhaps it's sort of the God-hauntedness there, Um, although it's also, in a sense, a God-rebelliousness against God that is there. Um, Perhaps it's the New England sense of humor that gets me, but I've enjoyed his books, even though I don't often agree with him on the the larger scheme of life. When The Cider House Rules was released, uh, the adaptation of his book into a movie with Tobey Maguire and Michael Caine and other people, um, he talked about why he wrote it. And at that point, I'd already become a Christian, and I was very distressed at why he apparently wrote that. He saw the book and the movie as expressions of his understanding of and rationale for abortion on demand. He meant the Cider House rules to explain to people the necessity of what I consider as calamity. He had a purpose. and That reminds us that authors often have a purpose in what they write and you know, why they write things. We often aren't sure what the purpose is. We don't always have an interview with the author to explain that. Um, Today, we have the author of John's Gospel explaining to us the very different purpose for which he wrote this Gospel, this account of the life of Jesus. Our big idea this morning is that John's Gospel is the means for us to have life In the sun. So we're going to look at it three ways this morning. The first part of it is that signs were given so we would believe and live. There's a problem, though, as we come to these verses, and that is that many question these two verses. They come in sort of an odd place because. It sounds like it's the sum total of this book, the fitting end to this gospel, and yet there's chapter 21 right after it. And so it seems strange in its placement. So some have thought maybe it belongs somewhere else. There's another question that arises as we think about these two verses. Is John speaking of the immediate context? Which is where some people go because it's, you know, the chapter 21. They think, oh, he's just speaking about the, the resurrection of Christ. I think it's about the whole book. And what I'm going to say this morning ties into the whole book. What does John say here? He starts off with the notion that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. John is telling us right off right here that his history of Jesus' life is not exhaustive. That he could have written much more. That we could have a much longer sermon series on the Gospel of John, (laughs) but we're not, okay? There's much more that he could have said, just as there's much more as I could have said about it. Jesus did far more than what we read here in the Gospel of John, far more than what we read about in the other three Gospel accounts, but these things were written for a reason. John is selective about what he writes for us. He wrote these things down. He wrote them down for a purpose. We see that John is not the only person who writes for a purpose in Scripture. We heard from Romans 15 that whatever was written in former days was written for your instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so Paul says the Old Testament was written so that you would have hope, that you would be able to endure, that you would be encouraged. We heard as well from Psalm 105 and part of what that why I put that in there was the notion of the telling forth of God's marvelous works. And then Psalm 105 lays them out some of them anyway. We see as well in 1 Corinthians 10 Paul writing again, but saying something slightly different to the Corinthians. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And he's talking about the warnings. He says, those bad things that the Israelites did and the judgment of God came, that came upon them was written for our instruction so that we would not walk in those sins. We would walk with God. So, why did John write these things? He says, so that you may believe. Sounds sort of simple. John wants his audience the original audience, Jew and Gentile, as well as everyone Jew and Gentile who would read this gospel account since that point in time to have faith, to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as he is presented in this gospel of John's. Let us remember what faith is for a second. Before we get ahead of ourselves, lest we assume everyone knows what faith really is, and I always go back to the to the quote I have from J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God, faith is self abandoning trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so it means I stop trusting in me, I stop trusting in what I do, and I stop uh, trying to control my life, and I. I throw it all on Christ. And John's gospel reveals who he is and reveals what he's done, the person and the work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. And so John is inviting us and all who read to trust in a particular Jesus. Not the Jesus of our own imaginations, but the Jesus who was revealed in the texts of Scripture. And now, just saying that brings up, I think, two tensions, at least it does for me, as I consider the whole of John's Gospel. And the first tension that we find, I find in Go- John's Gospel is the tension between the universal and the particular, because on the one hand, we see in John 3, for God so loved the world, some sense of universality. And on the other hand, we see that Jesus laid his life down for the sheep. And not everyone is his sheep. And so we have this great tension that exists not only in the whole of Scripture, but in this one gospel account. And the best way for us to understand this, I believe, is to remember that the elect which i talked about, there is a people that have been given to Jesus from the Father, as Jesus repeatedly said throughout this gospel, that this people given to him do not come just from Israel, but they come from every tribe and tongue and nation and language, as it talks about in Revelation 5. He purchases these people with his blood from every nation, but he does not buy every nation if you get the distinction. And so his people are drawn out of every people group on the face of the earth. So that's sort of the tension and, I think, resolution that we see, the first one. The second tension is the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Because we're told to believe, we're responsible to believe, and yet we also see the sovereignty of God displayed. For instance, in John 6, all that the Father gives to me, hey, those people again, you know, the particular people again, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, and then he says in verse 44, so they understand all of this better, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so there's a divine sovereignty that is necessary for anyone to come to Jesus. So... How, is this, how are we supposed to make sense? John, of course, having written those very words, would believe in God's ultimate sovereignty and the salvation of individuals. So why is he writing a book? Precisely because the Word of God written is the means by which the people given to Christ will come to Christ that the Father uses the Word of God by the Spirit of God to draw the people of God. That's what's going on. That's what we see in Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so our salvation is tied up in faith. And God gives that faith as we hear the Word of God read and preached. Sometimes we discount the Word of God preached. It seems foolish. I hear all the reasons. People have attention spans of only 20 minutes. People are all visual today because they watch too much TV and have iPods and iPads and everything else but God uses His Word. He's not bound by the limitations of any culture or any time. He still, by the power of the Spirit, uses the Word of God to awaken people to Christ and to work in them through the Gospel. So. The Father draws sinners to faith in Jesus through the Scriptures, which includes this particular part of the Scriptures, John's Gospel. I talked about signs. The first part of the book, as I've mentioned before, was, called, was often called the Book of Signs, and that offers seven signs. As John noted here, he could have written hundreds of signs. He chose seven. Seven. That idea of completeness there. Okay? So it has seven signs, and let's imagine for a moment that we're all in Steve Boyer's plane. Okay? And because we wouldn't fit, yeah, but let's, I said imagine. <laughs> because Steve doesn't fly up like an airliner, you know, way high up there. What he'll do, when, at least when I'm in his plane, is he'll fly over things. Oh, look, there's the church. Hey, Steve, look at this. You can see your house. Points things out. So we're flying over the Gospel of John together in Steve's plane, the TARDIS. Okay. Yes. That's the name of the plane. Okay. And what we see when we fly over, we see a wedding where wine, oh, sorry, water is turned into wine that they might celebrate. We see a Jewish official, a rabbi, whose son is deathly ill, who comes to Jesus, and Jesus heals his son, but he doesn't go to his son and touch him. He merely speaks the words, and the boy is healed. We see as well that there's an invalid, a man who has been crippled for life, who's by the pool of Siloam by the temple, and Jesus stands him up so he can walk. We see Jesus feeding 5,000 men and all of their wives and children in the wilderness where there's no 7 Actually, you need more than a 7 for that. There's no fries, the plunder. We see Jesus walking on water. We see Jesus encountering a man who was born blind And giving him sight. And lastly, we see Jesus giving life to his dead friend Lazarus, calling him out of the tomb that he's been in for a few days when everyone knew he was dead. The book of glory has the greatest signs. They're usually not counted in the seven. They're greater than the seven. It's his death and his resurrection for sinners. But all of these signs, all are intended to authenticate Jesus as to who he is. They're meant to be a big signpost going, this is the one, this is the one, this is the one. In Acts 2, Peter says this very thing. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, and here's the key phrase, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Hey folks, you had all been there. You'd all heard of these things. They're not a mystery to you. Jesus didn't work in a corner. He worked right here in Jerusalem. You all know these things, Peter is saying to them. And we know these things because Peter and John and Matthew and Mark and Luke have written these things down for us because they attest to the reality of who Jesus is. And it's important we have these things because he's not just a great teacher, he is a savior. Why is faith important? John tells us that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so what's on the line is eternal life, spiritual life. Because he's speaking to people who already have biological life. You're breathing, right? The people you see on the street, they're breathing, they're thinking, their hearts are beating. They have biological life, but they may not have spiritual or eternal life. And so John is writing that they may have that kind of life. This is not the only place John says this kind of thing. At the end of his first letter, in chapter five, it's almost you know verbatim. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. No faith, no Son. No Son, no life. But if we have faith in the Son, we have life eternal life. And so that's John's purpose in writing this gospel, to share these signs so that we would believe and that we would have eternal life. Secondly, signs reveal Jesus is the Messiah who gives life. In other words, what we believe about Jesus matters. We can't just look at him and say, oh, great signs, he's someone important. That's enough. We are to have a proper understanding of who Jesus is to believe particular things about who Jesus is. And so these signs are intended to point us to particular things about Jesus. He says, first off, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ or Messiah that Jesus is the promised one who restores Israel to God. These signs, in other words, must be understood. These signs must be interpreted. And, And Jesus taught in order to reveal who he was. And many of these teaching moments were explaining the signs that he did Okay. Let's talk about Messiah for a moment. Contemporary Judaism, and by that I don't mean like today, but I mean his contemporary Judaism, stressed the Davidic or kingly Messiah precisely due to the fact that they were being oppressed by the Romans. Okay. Uh, we see the, the initial hope for this in Second Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And so they're looking for a Davidic king who will come and rule over them and protect them, set them free from those nasty Romans and everything else. But that wasn't the only Messiah they believed in, or they were waiting for, Rather. Some, especially the people in the Qumran community, which was basically, um, if you could think of a, a group of Israelites, a group of Jews who were even more strict and religious than the Pharisees, okay? they had withdrawn from society, they had their own community, and they had very conservative beliefs. Okay? They, and some others, also believed in a priestly messiah that there was going to be a second an additional Messiah, and they sent it to focus on this one, someone who would not just be a king, but would purify all of Israel because they recognized the sinfulness of Israel. And so they saw that, that they needed someone to purify them. And what we find in John's Gospel is that Jesus is presented to us as a Messiah who is prophet. Okay, Like unto Moses, one who's greater than Moses, who is priest, who is the Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of the world, and who is king because he is, of course, the son of David. All three offices united in this one person that they called Messiah. Additionally, let's jump in our plane again. Well, Steve's plane again. Let's do another flyby over John's gospel. And Steve is shaking his head. I don't know why he's shaking his head. We see as well that Jesus is Jacob's ladder, that he's the one upon whom the angels ascend and descend, I just did that backwards, ascend and descend (laughs) to bring the blessings of God to God's people. He's the one, he's the instrument of our blessing. He is As we saw after the feeding of the 5,000, he declares himself to be the bread of heaven, the one who sustains God's people during their pilgrimage. Later, we see that he is the one as we fly by. We see these gigantic springs of living water that he gives us to sustain us during our pilgrimage. That's remarkable when you think about it. We live in a desert. But imagine living in the desert before there were pipes. You would go if you, if you were going to travel, you would go from oasis to oasis or river to river. There were still rivers then, at least that's what they tell me. There was still water in there, not just sand. Okay? But you would have to go from 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 body of water to body of water unless you found a well. And so for people living in a desert, this is very important. Okay? And part of what I think, I believe this is communicating is the nature of our salvation. We don't have to go to a particular place to experience salvation or to experience God. The Israelites had to go to the temple. That's where the proper corporate worship was supposed to take place. We don't need these to go to a foreign land. We don't have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You don't have to be like the uh, the Muslims and go to Mecca or anything else. You are able to experience the blessings of God through faith in Jesus Christ every day, no matter where you are. Do you understand how glorious of a blessing this is? You don't have to wait till Sunday to experience encouragement from God through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can open your Scriptures and the Holy Spirit will illumine them for you and you can be encouraged. You can go and talk to your brother and sister in Christ and they in the power of the Holy Spirit can remind you of the Scriptures and encourage you. They can comfort you. You don't have to go to the priest. You don't have to go to the place. But salvation is inside because of the indwelling Christ by the Spirit. He's also, as we see in John 10, the Good Shepherd, our loving King, who protects us, who guides us, And so, what happens is we we bring glory to Jesus when we trust Him as these things. All of these things. Because, of course, we don't tear Jesus apart. But we recognize that He's all of these things and so much more. We embrace the whole Christ, to steal from Sinclair Ferguson, and the whole Christ... Is the one who gives us life. So we see Jesus as this multifaceted Messiah who is able to meet all of our various needs. And so the signs point us to Jesus as the Messiah who alone can give us eternal life. Third thing this is sort of a summary. Someone expressed to me this week, oh, that means it's going to be short? I don't know. (laughs) But the third thing is that the signs reveal Jesus is the Son of God who gives life. You see, John wants us to know something else about the Messiah, that he's not just a man. He is no mere man like David was, but actually he is the Son of God who has always been... Mm -hmm. Who will always be, who, in the words of Hebrews, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Son of God, the Word of God the Word who was with God and was God, and through Him all things that were made were made. The Word of God is also the Creator of all that we see and hear and touch and taste and everything else we can experience. He made all that just as He made us. And not just that, but he also made himself flesh, took on flesh, became man as well, and dwelt among us. And the miracles that he performed while he was among us showed his authority over creation. Because only God has such authority over things. The prophets did some miracles to reveal that they had a message, but Jesus did far more miracles than any other prophet, precisely because he is the eternal son who took on flesh. As we see in the first chapter, he is the one who has life in himself. Precisely because he is divine, he has what's called a satiety or self-existence. He's not, his life is not contingent upon anyone or anything else. Only God is a non-contingent being. You are contingent. If you don't believe that, all we have to do is deprive you of air for a couple of minutes that sounds too scary try not eating for about a year okay or not having water we're dependent that's what contingent means we're dependent on so many things for our physical life jesus is dependent upon none of those things for his life because he has always been and gave life not just to creation but to Humanity. Let's continue our flyover. He's revealed as the light of the world. The one who grants light and guidance to all who believe. He is the one who declares that before Abraham was, I am. Not I was. But I am. He declares. Takes to himself the divine name of Yahweh there in John's gospel, and he declares, "Lest you be confused that there that we're talking about two different gods." He says, "The Father and I are one." He's able to give us life as the Messiah because he is the Son of God. We see as well, John fifteen, that he is the true vine. He's the real Israel. He's the one through whom life flows to the branches. And so the branches have to be connected to him by faith or they die. So John and the disciples saw these great signs. They heard these interpretations of the signs. They believed they received eternal life and they went to proclaim eternal life. And that, I believe, is meant to be the pattern for us. We're to read. We're to see the signs. We're to receive eternal life. And for those of us who have already received it, we are intended by this gospel to grow in our understanding of it through the ways in which Jesus is portrayed. Okay, so we don't have a simplistic faith, but we have a simple yet deep, rich faith. Okay? We have a maturing faith as we look at John's gospel and see, understand more of who he is. And we're meant to proclaim that faith as they proclaim that. And so John's gospel is intended to be a means for a faith and a means for deepening faith in the life of all of Jesus' disciples. All right. John Irving. You see, he thought that orphanages and incest justified abortion instead of adoption. John Irving thought that you could have life or better life from killing children. But as I read his novel, what I see is one where lives are devastated by abortion. I see the broken relationships as people deal with guilt I see there the drug addiction that the main doctor falls into and which kills him because of guilt. And so while, while John Irving thinks that his book provides rationale for abortion, I read the very same thing that he wrote and I go, he's crazy. It says the exact opposite. It says this is a plague. Not one that gives life, but one that gives death. And not just to the child in the womb. The the Apostle John's purpose was to show us how we have life through faith in the bleeding, dying Messiah who rose again from the dead. And so, this John's story is so much better than the other John's story. This John's story is not a novel, but it's true. And when we believe this story, this story begins to shape our lives. It begins to align us with God's character, begins to align us with God's purposes. And so this story that John tells calls us to be a people who partake of real life in increasing measure. And a people who proclaim that life in increasing measure. This book, this story, is so much better than anything John Irving or anyone else has ever written. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come because you have been gracious, because you have been kind, you have been merciful and wise in sending Your Son to be a Savior. And most of us in this room have partaken of this. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And we have received eternal life. But I pray for those who aren't there yet that you would draw them by the power of the Holy Spirit through the written Word, that they too would partake of this life. Father, as we continue to read this, not just to finish this sermon series, but as the rest of our lives deepen our faith through John's Gospel. Help us to see an increasing measure of The greatness of Jesus. Help us to see as a result the greatness of our need and His sufficiency to meet those needs. So that we grow in trust. So we grow in an understanding of that which we are to make known to other people. That we don't live in fear. So we don't live in anxiety. So we don't live hidden, but live as Jesus did, out front, in front of people. Because we trust you more than we're afraid of the world. And so work in us by your word, work in us by the Spirit, that these things would be true of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.